Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Persons Network. We are Blog Talk Radio's one and only authentic Catholic defenders of the deeper truths of our sacred faith. To learn more about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. If you would like to call in tonight with your comment or question, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. For follow-up information after the show, email us anytime at email at thefourpersons.com. That's email at thefourpersons.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Indeed. It is Saturday night, and that means Catholicism rocks. And we've got a real treat for you tonight. We have special guest, Avelina Balestri. Avelina Balestri is a Catholic author and editor based in the historic borderlands of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Her stories, poems, and essays have been featured in over 30 print and online publications. She has published two books, Saplings of Sherwood, the first book in a Robin Hood retelling series, and Pendragon's Shield, a collection of poetry. She is the editor-in-chief of Fellowship and Fairy Dust, a magazine inspiring faith and creativity and exploring the arts through a spiritual lens. Under its auspices, she hosted a literary conference at Lady Margaret Hall in Oxford, England, commemorating the legacy of J.R.R. Tolkien. She also has the honor of representing the state of Maryland at the Sons of the American Revolution National Orations Contest, Avelina believes that the Trinitarian divine dance and the incarnation indwelling mystery are reflected in all things good, true, and beautiful, and that the image of God is wonderfully woven into every human heart. These themes are at the forefront of the stories she chooses to tell. For more information about the author and her various projects, you can visit the links that are in our show notes, the fellowshipandfairydust.com. AvelinaBallistry.com, and there is a link for one of her for her book, uh, Saplings of Sherwood. First, let me introduce the host of Catholicism Rocks. First of all, uh, Ed Gravelin is out on a, uh, a medical uh, situation. He is recovering from uh, knee surgery, but we have Jack Gist. Jack, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, how are you? Doing very good. And if you do talk to Ed, uh, do convey to him that he will be in our uh, thoughts and prayers for a full and complete recovery. And, uh, you know, I always love these shows because I think you guys got an awesome website. I love what uh, Sean and Kathy are doing over there. And uh, I love what you bring to the table and you're reaching out all all over the place and bringing in these wonderful guests. And we have one tonight, and let's bring her on. Avelina, how are you doing tonight? Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So you actually live in Maryland now? Yes, I do. I'm a native of the state. <laughs> where, where do you live in Maryland? In Tawnytown. So it's right by the border uh, with Pennsylvania, the Mason-Dixon line. I see. Okay. So I actually live in Virginia, and I oh, really? work in Great. Maryland. Oh, nice. What part of Maryland yeah. do you work in? I work in the uh, Rockville, Gaithersburg area, so oh, a little okay. bit further south than you. Oh, yeah, so a little a little bit closer to the true the true south. <laughs> yeah. We're sort of, yeah. you know, we're, we're in that area that during the Civil War, pe- people tended to be cheering on the Yankees more than the uh, the butternuts, but you're, you're more in the butternut zone <laughs> of the state. Right, right. And, uh, um, a lot of people don't know this, but the state of Maryland was uh, kind of derisively named as uh, because that's where uh, a lot of uh, persecuted Catholics uh, fled to. Oh, yeah. And it became derisively known as, as Maryland. So, and that is now pronounced Maryland. So, um, yeah. And it was Jack, named after. Uh, well, um, 
Yeah. As I recall, it was also, it was sort of a dual naming. Um, so the first, it was said it was being named after Queen Henrietta Maria because she was the, you know, the French princess who was married to King Charles I, um, and she was Catholic, and she had kind of interceded on behalf of the Catholics to, you know, obtain this place of refuge in the colonies for Catholics from her husband. Um, but then also, I mean, it, it was kind of obvious, and I think it was a wink-wink, you know, that, that it was talking about the, the Blessed Virgin as well. Right. So, Jack, why don't you uh, kick off the interview? Okay. Uh, uh, we could go in a lot of different directions here because uh, we could go – I mean, you've done a lot, Abilene. You've, you've written quite a bit, <laughs> and you're, you're – uh, the magazine, I looked to take – I wasn't aware of the magazine, actually, but I took a look at it, and it's been around a lot longer than I would have imagined – and it's got a long reach too, so that's that's really cool. So maybe I'll just submit something to you there. I'm an author myself, yeah, so we would welcome I'll... that. We always mm-hmm. we always welcome new um, submissions from people. It's Excellent. always something we are eager to get. Keep the blog material rolling and um, the seasonal issues. So yeah. Well, as the as the I'm the director of culture and society over at Catholicism of Rocks, and we're trying we're still trying to get things going pretty well, but this seems like mm-hmm. a very good place to start. So with that in mind, the society and culture, I did read your novel, Saplings of Sherwood, and I, I enjoyed it quite a lot. It's, it's, it's very oh, well written. You. It's very well written, thank and you. I don't say that lightly because there's a lot of stuff out there these days that is just uh, kind of thrown together, but that's that, it's professional. It's well written. It's got a nice cadence. Everything is good about it. But uh, from oh, a more... From a more philosophical level, uh, I I think we talked briefly in, in an email, basically, about John Gardner's book uh, on moral fiction. And in that book, he argued that uh, fiction, true, to actually come up to this level of true fiction, uh, a, a story had to be moral. It couldn't be just, you know, like the postmodern thing where it's just more about mm-hmm. the author than anything else. It's it, It's a... A, a core moral thing. And I, he he did, didn't really go into the whole Christianity thing uh, too much. He just argued that point, and he argued it rather well. I would argue that that's probably true. I would agree with Gardner, but I have to. I also think that uh, morality has to be grounded in some sort of uh, truth uh, or worldview. So I mean, we, we, you could go all over with this. But in, in the Saplings of Sherwood, which is a retelling of Robin Hood in a very in a very uh, fresh way, and I would encourage people to go out there and take a look at it. You're not going to be you're, you won't be sorry that you purchased it. Uh, and and with that in mind, sort of think about these questions we're bringing up here. Up here. So if you would, Evelina, could you tell us a little bit about the novel and the sort of the resonance of morality? Because there's a lot of morality going on in the novel. The, uh, the, how how morality, Catholic morality, uh, resonates through the tale. Sure. Well, um, I always like to do this with my my readers. <laughs> What's your impression of like the overall? Could you give you know kind of um, give a summary as as you saw it, like the main themes and whatnot of the story uh, from a reader's well, perspective? I think the main theme for me, it's it, it, I think it's kind of uh, in the end, it's fellowship. Uh, I, I, I would think, but there's a tension between friendship and vengeance and all and forgiveness and vin, vengeance and, and uh, those type of things. So what I what interested me in the telling of it was the moral core, because morality mm-hmm. isn't black. Morality for us humans down here on Earth isn't always black and white, especially in the time we live in. We have all mm-hmm. kinds of things like uh, anti-heroes. We have the villain now. Uh, ob- a lot. The villain is actually supposed to be sympathetic, even to the point of being more sympathetic than the protagonist in in, in a lot of movies and books these yeah. days. Yeah, sort so, of the Joker effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, I I think when I, you know, set to writing Saplings of Sherwood and the other books in the series that I've begun to write. Um, what's important to me is to try to convey that this is taking place in um, a deeply Christian universe. You know, I mean, this is medieval Christendom and 
you know, Christianity has an influence, and Catholicism in particular, you know, has an influence in almost every layer and aspect of society and in people's personal lives. So their morality is inevitably shaped by that. It can't help but be. And even the characters who are living their faith very poorly still are shaped by it. They can't really escape it. It is really a, you know, crafting element of, you know, everything that, that they approach. Yeah, I, I, I can see that in the, in the story. But in your mind, and I saw maybe hints of this or I possibly could have been reading into it. Well, I tend to do that. <laughs> I think all readers tend to do that, though. That's sort of like a reader response sort of theory of reading. But uh, along with, yes, in, me- in medieval Europe, Christianity was medieval Europe, basically. But it hadn't mm-hmm. always been that way. So I'm thinking about stories like uh, the epic poem Beowulf, where that's, uh, there's a real tension between Christianity and the old world. And even, mm-hmm. with the Nor- even with the Normans uh, in the novel, you know, they're, they're Scandinavian descent. So in their, in their back history, they were shaped by something other than Christianity and then assimilated into Christianity. So is there any kind of tension like that in your works? Well, there definitely is. I mean, pretty much from the onset. Um, so when we meet Robin's mother, Eldrida, she is very much – of a representative, you know, of a representation, a representative of that tension. On the one hand, she's a pious Christian woman. On the other hand, she has certain pagan sensibilities. Um, and she has a certain drive towards the, the old ways, even though she, she's aware of it herself and is actually cautious of it, but burning vengeance for one thing is not a terribly Christian attribute, very understandable in her case, because she, you know, she was on the receiving end of some horrible atrocities that were committed um, by the Normans crushing Saxon revolts and, and things of that nature. But the fact is she, she, she's attracted to the paganism found in the old myths and, and so on. So, we see that, and she passes on some of that to Robin, even as a small child, telling him these stories of their pagan ancestry. And she tries to, you know, mesh the different elements of their ancestry together into a whole. Um, but it, it sometimes ends up clashing inevitably. And this comes up even more when you have the Welsh characters who end up settling on the Loxley estate. And they are basically pagan in quite a few ways. I mean, Christo-pagan might be the right word because they kind of mix things. They're a little bit, they're like a more a more leaning pagan version of what Eldrida is, I suppose. Like, Eldrida is firmly practicing Christian, you know, but she still is, has influence in terms of the, the myths you know, of, of their ancient pagan past. These other characters are kind of more or less practicing elements of, of paganism as well as Christianity and different characters within that um, community kind of lean more Christian um, and some of them lean more pagan in, in that general mix. But we see that with the characters of Owain and Priyanan and um, later on of, of Gareth. Um, so, yeah, so they they kind of represent that tension very strongly. Well, I think uh, uh, I'm glad you answered that question that way. Cause that's the way I was, that's the way I was reading it. And it brings me to my next question is uh, sort of why a retelling of the Robin Hood uh, story combined with, with, with the time that we live in, because I think you could say that, you know, when the Catholic church, I keep reading all kinds of horrible statistics that I, I, you find it hard to believe, though. It's like uh, it's like seventy percent. I think I read just the other day, seventy percent of Catholics don't believe in the real presence of uh, the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And when I read things like that, I go, "Well, okay, what's going on here?" And then you read uh, about all the, you know, people that claim, you know, loose loosely to be Christian or 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 Catholic, you know, Christian Catholics, but then they 
also seem to fall to the, the culture at hand, and the culture at hand does seem to have very sort of uh, pagan undertones are popping up all over the place, pagan undertones and worse, uh, uh, frankly. Yeah. So it, in one sense, your novel, although it's a retelling of the Robin Hood series, you know, set in the medieval Europe, it's, it resonates. Well, it will resonate, I think, with, with – it's a good story for one thing, but I think it resonates uh, on a deeper level with the times we live in. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that your intention at all, or is that just how, how the story came out? I know when I write stuff, I, I have these big philosophical things in the back of my mind, but I really just try – and then I try to tell a, a decent story. Uh, right. but, they, but they tend to come out, and sometimes not the way I expected so tell us a little bit about your writing experience and how it resonates sort of with your Catholic, uh, your Catholicism. Yeah. So for me, I think that, you know, some things that Tolkien said apply here in terms of inevitably if you're, um, you know, practicing Catholic, you know, or Christian of any type, or even frankly, I mean, this is true across the board. If you're, if you are a member of any religion, that is going to inevitably come through in your writing, I think. It's hard not to have that happen because, you know, you are you are the storyteller. So quite a bit of you is going to come out um, in how the, that story is shaped and crafted. So inevitably, you know, your spirituality is going to be key to how you see other people, to how you see the world. And I think it's true that storytelling can be seen as something of a spiritual exercise. So Tolkien would talk about it as sub-creating. And there are these, you know, elements of refracted light um, and, and, you know, fragments of truth that come through in telling. Um, And, you know, Robin Hood is a story that, you know, is, is a legend and it incorporates so many different elements of things, both mythic and historical, in the many, many, many times it has been retold down through the centuries. Um, so it's one of those stories that is endlessly applicable, I think, because it deals with various universal themes um, that are, you know, moral in their nature. And sometimes they do deal with the gray areas of morality. I mean, the very notion that we have sort of a, you know, a thief <laughs> who is at the same time a folk hero. I mean, it, it's to me, as I mentioned in the introduction of the book, it is like a parable, the story of Robin Hood and the various, you know, ver- you know, versions that come up in the legendarium have elements of a parable of the, you know, being last and the last being first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, those who, Horde riches being cast down and the humble and dispossessed being brought to table. And, you know, there's so many elements of that kind of thing. And the idea that at a certain point, there's, um, there's a line between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And sometimes it's the outcasts and the outliers who grasp the spirit better. So to me, there has always been, you know, very clearly these elements. The Marian element, I think, is one of the strongest in the sense that in even the earliest texts and versions of of these tales, Robin is depicted as being deeply Marian as a figure. In fact, before the character Marian ever existed, you know, she was kind of introduced later on, and some people think she was introduced actually as England uh, fell away from her Catholic roots and, um, you know, was there to replace the Virgin Mary. You know, in the earliest material, it's actually said Robin has no other lady but the Blessed Virgin. And he's seen telling his beads, which is the name of the series, you know, the telling of the beads. Um, and, and it's something that, you know, is very clear in his honor code of never harming um, a woman or a man in woman's company and various other things. And risking... Um, capture to go to mass on Lady Day's, you know, feast of feasts of the Virgin Mary, and I mean, all of this just really brings up, of course, the fact that England was a richly Catholic culture, um, and 
you know, the great, you know, tragedy to my mind that has, that has been forgotten um, greatly due to a propaganda campaign, you know, that was waged um, mainly during the reign of um, Elizabeth I that essentially kind of mind wiped <laughs> a lot of that Catholic identity and to the point that in the following generations, you know, people, they, they, they just naturally and inherently view Catholicism as foreign um, as opposed to being very much a part of their ancestral roots and culture and what England even was. So, you know, all that matters to me because, you know, I love England dearly. Um, and so, you know, it, it came through, you know, in, in the telling of this. And, and I mean, with, with Robin Hood um, also, I feel like certainly the way that I'm trying to approach it is that it's, it's about the formation of the English identity as well in the sense that we're dealing with the different strands of what become, you know, the English people. So you deal with the, the Celts and the Saxons and the Normans, and we bring in the Danes a little bit where we have little John being half Saxon and half Danish. Um, and he actually is another liminal character in terms of bringing in some pagan elements as well. Uh, but yeah, so we have all of these different, you know, elements and the Norman conquest and how that is affecting everyone and the slow movement toward them becoming one people um, and, you know, England becoming one and then eventually the whole of Britain becoming one. And it, it, it's, it's something that's always fascinated me, um, mm -hmm. you know, how peoples come together and so forth. And that does inevitably reflect today as well um, because it does, it reflects on the identity of a, of a people, like what is, what is the, the English identity and then like, what is the British identity? So that all applies. And um, yeah, maybe you should ask me the <laughs> second part of your question again. I feel like I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I, I like tangents. <laughs> but that's yeah, one tangent. You get there. You get more interesting information out of uh, uh, those sometimes than just straightforward. This but when you were, true. but when you were explaining uh, Robin Hood, there it almost sounded to me like you were explaining. Uh, uh, I'm sort of a Arthur freak. Uh, uh, I've read. I've, I've I studied in college quite a bit of Arthurian literature. Ah, nice. Basically, the whole cycle. I took some uh, graduate classes in it. And chivalry plays a key role in that, but you almost sounded like you were describing Robin as an Arthurian knight that was practicing the code of chivalry. There's the code of chivalry that we're often told these days, chivalry is dead. Is the code, mm -hmm. of code of chivalry something that binds uh, all these different aspects of a, sort of a fledgling Christianity together? I mean, again, when we, when we go back to Beowulf, and some of the old Irish stuff, too, you, you really can see yeah. there's a tension between, a big tension between the new Christianity and the old, like, uh, blood vengeance types, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sort of ethos, like the mother sort of has that still in her. And I think that's sort of a microcosm of the human soul, isn't it? Don't we all have that in us a little bit? Uh, we have our that human nature, but we're striving for something better, but... Not very, and even if you ended up being the thief by sort of normal standards, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the bad guy, as in the case of Robin Hood, because right. you've overcome you've overcome sort of the uh, the particularly human things that you know really do go after revit. I mean, people do it still to this day. People are vengeful. Uh, some mm -hmm. people try to overcome that. Some people are successful. A lot of people aren't. People are selfish, just like they always have been. I always say that uh, we've made a lot of technical advances in the past, uh, you know, 2,000 years, but we've made very little. The human nature hasn't changed really much at all. So No, and, and that's the thing. There are some things that are universal in all times and all places and all cultures, and that is the reality of human nature. Human nature, it's like a great work of art with a crack through it. Um, you know, we, we are capable of so much good, and we are also capable – of great dysfunction and violence right. and hate we, and so many things. Jack, do you mind if I interject something in here real quick? Uh, please do, please do. Sure. I was first, I was sort of first of all, our guest, 
Our guest tonight is Avelina Balestri. And if you want to call in on the show here on uh, Catholicism Rocks on the Four Person Network, the number is 515-602-9655. Again, the number is 515-602-9655. I want to develop on, on what you guys, because it's kind of funny because you guys were saying what I was thinking. And I was like, okay, are they listening to the inside of my head? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I want to play something. <laughs> I, I want to play something because the way that you're tracking is, uh, especially with what Jack was saying about how we're moving and advancing in the technology. But I think in some ways it's been counterproductive because we're losing that sense of identity. We're losing that sense of the culture and the and the art mm-hmm. of who we are. And that's why this story about Robin Hood is such a throwback to that. And these stories like, um, uh, like, uh, you know, Arthur and the, and the, and the Knights of the Round Table, and these are throwbacks mm-hmm. to that. And I see that in your writings, not only in your books, but I see it in, in your blog as well. So Jack, this, this quiz is for you. So Aveline, you can't help him. Okay. I'm going to play. I'm going to I'm play sorry, a piece Jack. of music. I'm going to play a piece of music, Jack. Hey, and I want you. To... I never signed up for this. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to play the piece of music. It's very interesting because at the last uh, apostolate that I was involved in, we actually did a special on the actual birth date of Jesus Christ, and this was one of the pieces of music that I selected as the background music for parts of that. I'm going to play it, and I want to see, Jack, if you can tell me the title and artist. Avelina, you cannot help him, okay? Okay. Are we ready? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) Go go crazy to your doom. (laughs) Can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. I know that. I know that song. It sounds like. I do too, and I can't think of what it is. Yeah, I, I, I know who that is. That's one of my. Oh, it's that Canadian singer. No, I know what it is. Oh gosh, I know who it is. <laughs> He's one of my favorites. Well, she's one of my favorites too, but I'm drawing a blank. I, I listen to her almost every day. I mean, <laughs> maybe in a country. Can I give him a hint? Go ahead. Okay, the initials are L M. Lorena McKinnon. Okay, but name the piece of music. Uh, that's as good. That's as good as oh, you okay, can get. Okay, that's Okay. See, I know See? most of. I I usually know her like songs more than the instrumental oh, pieces. Okay. Okay. The piece of music is called K. Caratomine. Okay. Yeah, we would never have gotten that. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have got that. <laughs> okay. But and with the hint, I got it. With the hint, I got the name. So that's uh, that's more awesome, than I yeah. See, more than so, I had hoped for. <laughs> so obviously, you know where the term K. Caratomine comes from. No, I don't. The angel please, Gabriel's please the angel Gabriel's you? greeting to Mary, cake carry cake caratomine, hail full of grace. Oh, okay. that's actually epic. I did not know that. Yes. Little so I noticed that because one of the first things when I explored your blog at the beginning of the show, I noticed that you did a feature on Lorena McKennett. and I was like, okay, uh-huh. I see. And this is an example of what I'm talking about, about how her music, which is very different from a lot of the music that's out today, is, is a throwback to what music used to be in art. And it's a yes. reconnection to that period of our, when, when religion and, what, and our belief was so predominant in our culture and such a big part of who we are. And here that, here that she's created this piece of music and actually named it. Full of grace. Take care of Tomine. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, she she does some really lovely um, stuff. Her piece um, adapting the Dark Knight of the Soul by Saint John of the Cross is one of my favorites. Oh wow, um, that's a powerful. She book. <laughs> has done she has done some some of my favorite um, poems like the, the Highwayman by Alfred Noyes, Lady of uh-huh. Shalott by Lord Tennyson. Um, so she she has just done this you know huge swath of, of music that I listen to a ton when writing. Um, so highly recommend her stuff. Actually, if I could pitch two other artists I listen to a ton. Um, uh-huh. One of them is Carlene. So she does a lot of music pertaining to stories and fandoms, and she does some folk as well. I listen to her stuff a lot. Um, and also Sammy Youssef. So he does actually lots of Eastern and Islamic spiritual music, which is very interesting. And sometimes it, I, would, I would literally pay quite a bit if I had a lot to pay <laughs> to see Lorena McKenna and Sammy Yusuf do a gig together because she sometimes does various Eastern music threads as well. She's very versatile. She will do Western and Eastern styles of instrumentation and so forth. Um, but Sammy Yusuf has a very wide variety of of really beautiful music, um, you know, from a you know the Islamic world, and really brings to light a lot of poetry in various languages, you know, ranging from you know Farsi to Persian to Arabic um, to Urdu and and beyond, and just some really lovely stuff. So I, I listen to those three artists just a lot <laughs> when writing. Well, that, 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 the conversation is taking interesting turns, and it's something Avalu said, so I guess maybe because we're all Catholics, we have somewhat of a similar worldview. I don't know how many people yeah. actually listen to Laureen McKinnick. A lot of people do, but it's oh, all a lot of people also- do. A lot of people do, um, actually. It, you know, she kind of has a universal appeal. To, she does. You know, she does. Yeah, she has a, a very – well, I don't know. It's, it's almost like, again, maybe what I was saying about when you tell – when you tell a good story, I mean, I think it almost naturally contains something spiritual to it. I think the mm-hmm. same can be said of music. When you're drawing from these older folk paths and traditions, you end up well, with – I think that's the um, point that I was making is that her mm-hmm. music is is a throwback to um, 500 years ago. Her music would not have seemed that unusual. <laughs> it's, right. Uh, exactly. Uh, uh, it's so different. It's you know, it's what's what's old is new again, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, in the in the days I, I was using it to emphasize the point that Jack was making in the days of technology and and auto tone and and everything is synthesized and everything like that. Uh, we've lost some sense of that of what art really is. I mean, look at the designs of churches. The modern designs of churches com- compared to those Gothic cathedrals. Um, uh, yeah. You know, um, so we've lost. In, haven't we lost some sense of the connection of who we are? Well, I think uh, let me jump in here real quick, and then I'll throw it back to Abelina. Uh, over at Catholicism, rocks were very into tradition because we sort of see Catholicism is tradition. You can't really have it without tradition. And I think when you start talking about the more popular culture uh i think and identity you said something about identity the identity is being lost quickly if you just look at the headlines in the the news when people are very concerned uh about whether they're uh male or female uh that's your that means your identity has been completely shot basically to uh you've been erased to a certain extent so i think people are hungry for the tradition that is humanity, if you get where I'm going with that, and the the technology has gone so fast so quickly. Now we're on up to AI, which I saw a, a cut today of the United Nations had these AI robots, nine of them answering these questions, and it was just bizarre and it was frightening. But either uh, we seem to be on a cusp, uh, sort of a big cusp, for whether and. One side or the other is going to have to be wrong or right to a certain extent. But back to the book, back to uh, uh, Saplings of Sherwood, has things like that always been going on where there's always a tension between the past and the present? Uh, and, and sort of our, our, in Arthurian literature, you see, the, you see the fall of Arthur 
as, mm-hmm. as the dawning of a new age. I mean, it's not a pretty one either. It's a bad, it's a, it's a, when, when Arthur falls, Arthur's dead and the world that he lived in is over with. Are we on some sort of a cusp like that at this point? Just throwing that out well, there. Well, I, I think, I, I think the, I think the reality is we always are dealing with the fallout of the dysfunction of so many elements of our world. Um, I don't think there's ever been a perfectly golden age. There's been elements that are, I'll put it this way, there's been elements that are good, true, and beautiful, but there has always been the dysfunction in the midst of that. I think it just repeats itself, and every generation Every generation seeks to overcome one vice, but oftentimes they forget a virtue in the process. So I think we always find ourselves in this same struggle because, as we were saying earlier, human nature has not changed in what we are. We're still, you know, um, we, we still are broken in various ways. And, you know, we still sort of seek out grace in order to, repair ourselves. And I mean, maybe, maybe the more appropriate way of putting that is grace must seek us out in order to repair us and we respond to it. I guess that's the reality of the thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think that stories though, like Arthur and like Robin Hood as well, I feel like Robin Hood is almost in some way more, a more earthy form of, of Arthur. Arthur is more properly mythic. Robin Hood is more grounded in in a historical setting you know you don't you don't get sort of the magical elements um as much but you know at the same time it it has taken on so many layers i think it could be called mythic at this point but you know what i'm basically saying (laughs) it's a little distinct um it's more of a common man's version of the thing but but at the same time it is talking about the same reality i think which is that in the midst of dysfunction, there will come heroes to remind us that all is not lost, that hope is not gone, that grace yeah. is not emptied of its power, you know. And and Did I you, think that that's, yeah, the key of a good story in a way, a good, um, you know, hero's journey. Are you familiar, either one of you, with uh, Gabriel Marcel? The, I don't believe so. He was a, a Catholic uh, existentialist back in the, you know, sort of, I think he studied under Heidegger, but he also wrote plays. And he, what you were saying just reminded me of him because he wrote a very excellent play, if you're into plays, called A Broken World. And it it's more or less encapsulates just what we're talking about, is that the world has always been, you know, since the what the Eden, it's been a fallen world, but he calls it a broken world. And we get these little puffs of grace every now and then that if we recognize them, they can keep us going. Otherwise it gets mm-hmm. pretty dark, pretty fast. And I think stories play a huge part. And I agree with you that they're very spiritual. The, the act of writing stories I, I, uh, I see as a spiritual exercise. I think uh, the, the, the little, Bursts of grace can be sort of captured and transmitted through a story if the story, if sort of like if the Holy Spirit sort of wants it that way. Uh, and those are the yeah, there's, what, um, back to yeah. full circle real quick. Is that, that that's sort of back to where we started with John Gardner's moral fiction. Uh, morality to me implies some sort of spirituality because if morality is just completely man-made, like many secular secular people believe that it is, then it's almost uh it's it leads to nihilism because anybody any morality is as good as the other for morality to be true game of thrones game of thrones game of yeah exactly exactly so uh john do you have anything yeah no i agree and i think what yeah i think what you were saying about yeah the the spiritual exercise element of writing i think and the holy spirit there's, there's an element to artistry, which involves getting yourself out of the way and trying to be more of an instrument than a director. Um, and that you try, I mean, I think, I think a, good, a good, again, the best way I think of putting it is sub-creating in the sense that obviously we're not merely an instrument. We are actually actively doing something. 
but at the same time we are we're under something greater that is moving yeah. you know the ultimate force by which we are able to create yeah. is the and, great you know, creator when you talk about that creativity i think it's very very important because uh, especially with respect to uh to our children there's that there's that hunger there's that need especially among children to have imagination to have fantasy and if we don't provide that in a in a wholesome holy way society is more than ready to move in and and fill in that void and with all kinds of harmful things and and Jack was bringing up some of those you know some of those elements i mean look look at the Look at the rise of the occult in and how it's portrayed in stories and movies and television. The glorification of of the occult, uh, which I think is very interesting because I want to use this to kind of dovetail to the to your next uh, uh, thing that you that is mentioned here. That you're the editor in chief of, of Fellowship and Fairy Dust. That sounds like kind of a throwback to the faith in and uh, uh, creativity. Of, yeah. of young people. Is that kind of, am I on the right track that you're looking to, to to take a childlike imagination back to where it was back then rather than the dark things that they're exposed to today? Well, you know, it's, it's not, it's obviously, it's not, it's not a children's magazine per se. I mean, certainly it's, it's got plenty of stuff on there that's, you know, fine, but I mean, it is a, a magazine for all ages. Um, you know, it has a variety of, of material on it, what we do seek to do is, I guess, again, back to sort of the sub-creating thing. We, we seek to take the worldview of people like Tolkien and, and Lewis and Chesterton and McDonald, for example, and then try to infuse it in a variety of different mediums. So, you know, whether it is in fiction or in nonfiction, in analysis of different mediums, like, you know, literature and film and music and so forth. Um, in poetry, and also in artwork and photography. So we're trying to kind of cover the wide umbrella of the liberal arts in a way that is aware, you know, keenly aware of the spiritual significance of these mediums. And I think this ties in a little bit to the question of, you know, morality in, in art. Um, for, like, I know that there's the ongoing sort of debate about morality versus entertainment value. And people right. think, well, is art more, you know, with the purpose of entertaining or is it more with the purpose of teaching? Well, it's so, I it's what I would... so ironic and interesting that you bring that up because I, I just wanted to um, give you a, a, just a little perfect uh, personal anecdote. And then I want to hear your, your response because some years ago when my kids were still young, we went to see one of the uh, Lord of the Rings movies, The Return of the King. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we watched it on Christmas Day, and I was absolutely overwhelmed by that movie to the point of almost to the point of tears because I just saw the Catholic elements just shining through. One one scene where where Frodo says to Sam, uh, you know, the ring is my burden, and then Sam turns to him and says, well, maybe I can't carry the ring, but I can carry mm -hmm. you. And I just, wow. That was, that's so Catholic. Yeah. And my kids oh, yeah, no, did it was not see it at all. They did not. They saw it, like you said, as entertainment. Uh, is that what you're talking about? Is that it's the they've they've lost the sense of meaning and they just see it as something to yeah. keep them busy and occupied for two hours. Well, I, th I think there's a there's a Chestertonian sort of um, saying that you know magic must have a meaning. And I think this is true of reality, and I think this is true of, you know, art. It, it must have a meaning or, it's, you know, even something that is very entertaining can, can only, I think, be truly entertaining if you take something away that has meaning from it. If it has no meaning, I don't think the human soul can actually even accept that as, as truly Entertaining. I think the thing is what entertaining is. It brings something to us that 
brings joy or, you know, or, or, or something of, you know, something that just makes us feel more alive, I suppose. So, so in um, other words, think... to, to draw an analogy, are you like saying it's like, uh, like eating something substantial as opposed to drinking sugar water, <laughs> something that gives you a, a well, little yeah, rush, I mean, but I mean, that's I mean, no nutritional value. I think the value. thing is, is that, yeah, and, and I mean, I think the thing is that there, it's important that, the, like, there, there is a bad reputation that Christian films get, right, for being just like a, a pamphlet, you know, uh, a proselytization pamphlet, that it lacks entertainment quality. It, it, it lacks craft. And that's true of quite a few Christian films. I think it is important that the works we put out actually have aesthetic value, but they must have a heart and a soul. All the aesthetic value in the world without a heart and a soul just is a failed, is a failed work. So, you know, at the heart of it, it, it will inevitably fail if it doesn't have a core center that has meaning and worth and value. And this is, I think, the core reason why Game of Thrones failed. Um, there was many reasons why it failed, but that, I think, is the core reason. Um, it embraced nihilism. You can't yes. make nihilism meaningful. You can't make nihilism relay something that is actually going to matter to people because what you are inherently saying is nothing matters. So. Yes. By definition, yeah. nihilism is meaningless. <laughs> right, exactly. So nihilism is the antithesis of true art, the point you cannot truly capture art and all that art means, you know. <laughs> this is sort of funny um, because I was just actually reading something that was written by General John Burgoyne, um, the general, the British general who um, – lost so massively at the battles of Saratoga, Saratoga campaign in the American Revolution. Well, he was a playwright um, as well. And so I was reading some of his stuff he was writing about, you know, uh, writing and being a, a playwright. But he was talking about plays as, as having something to do with nature, truth, and sense. Um, which is an interesting way of coming at it. And this was someone who was writing pretty – fun little plays. I mean, his plays were essentially rom-com musicals, but he somehow believed, you know, but he was a big Shakespeare fan as well. And one of like the really early um, proponents that like Shakespeare is the best among English um, playwrights and he should be like mandatorily studied and stuff like that. But he was talking about how there's something in the art of the play, for example, that, appeals to beauty and it appeals to truth and it appeals to sense and to nature itself. And I actually thought that was rather a lovely way of putting it. Um, and which I think is true of my understanding of storytelling as well. I, I agree with you. I think uh, Jacques Merton of the Catholic philosopher said something to the extent of uh, the final transcendent end is beauty and it's the artist's job is to capture a little bit of the spirit of that light and bring it forward. And it doesn't have to yeah. be all, it doesn't have to be all uh, kumbaya or anything either. I'm thinking of a uh, Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite authors. He just recently mm -hmm. passed away. And if anybody saw the movie, even they don't do it as well in the movie, but in a couple of his novels, but uh, all the pretty horses, they made a pretty good movie out of it. Mm -hmm. You've got all that darkness. Uh, uh, yeah. And, I'm thinking, what's the other one that was uh, that even darker? That's just, uh, I can't remember it. But, I mean, it's really dark, the one I'm thinking of. It's not all the pretty horses, but it's, it's about the drug dealer. The guy finds the briefcase full of money in the desert, and it's the Mexican drug cartels, and they're all, everybody dies by the end, and yeah. there's the sheriff. McCarthy ends a lot of his books with this image. Somebody has to carry the light forward, no matter how dark it gets. Somebody yeah. has to carry the light forward. And he wasn't Catholic or anything, but that's sort of a very Catholic image, uh, dark night of the soul and everything else. It can right. get pretty darn dark. And it, in my opinion, it's pretty dark right now. So you can see as a Catholic storyteller or a Christian storyteller, even uh, 
and, and it comes down to the prologue of it comes down to the prologue of John, of John. You know, the light goes into the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And uh, I think that we're seeing different religions that are tra- traditional enemies are even aligning now against this sort of nihilism that has be- become more and more prevalent. Uh, well, some- I mean, I work with like I mean, I I work with Muslims frequently. Um, in various projects, um, particularly actually later on in this series, we have a character um, who is based off of a historical character, not to get too down, too far down this bunny trail, but he's based off of one of Salah Hadin's, so the, the, the sultan during the Third Crusade, his aide-de-camp, who basically sacrificed himself when the sultan got cut off from his army that was retreating and chaos ensued and some knights were going to capture him and this aide basically sacrificed himself to let the sultan escape. So this was a real historical incident, but what I did was I created a historical fiction subplot involving the character who in my version does not get killed, but instead is captured. Everyone just thinks he's dead back home, but he ends up being taken back to England um, where he has to be a mercenary to survive. And all of this various stuff unfolds, and he's knit into the Robin Hood story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, trying to write him well, you know, I'm really thankful to various, you know, Muslim friends who just, you know, rose to the challenge of helping me make this character sound authentic and make it really feel real, because I want the Islamic universe and his flashbacks in the Islamic universe to not feel like, you know, the Wizard of Oz, so to speak, where the, it's sort of like it feels less real than than Europe. Like, I want the Middle East to feel as real, and I want the realization that just as Christianity like permeates every aspect of society and, and the Christian spiritual tradition it, like impacts the characters the way that it does, I want the same to be shown with regards to the Muslim characters in the Muslim world. Um, so, you know, they've been massively helpful with that, um, especially two friends in particular, um, Adil Ahmed, who is sort of my, my regular go-to editor. <laughs> we edit each other's material regularly. Um, and so he helped me edit, like, the whole Stoppings of Sherwood as well. I mean, he, did, he doesn't just do these Muslim characters. Um, but my other friend, Adil Mulk, who kind of helped a ton with Al Kashif, the character, in terms of just infusing him with a lot of Islamic spirituality and mysticism and just an awareness of that kind of thing, which again, it's, it's one of those things where I really wish that so many Hollywood people, when they were handling religions, whether it's Christianity or Islam or whatever they are handling, would get more people who actually practice their religion on board to help them <laughs> actually this, depict it accurately and depict it the way that the practitioners would actually think of things and behave and so forth. So it's always been very important to me to do that. Um, but but getting back to the original point, um, yeah, there, there are various things, you know, that people of faith can get together on in an increasingly secular society. Um, I think that it is important that we do. I mean, to be to be frank, I've even had many good conversations with, you know, people who consider themselves pagans, like neo-pagans and whatnot. You know, they at least, you know, really are seeking out something that is beyond the merely material, you know. Um, And we do have various crossovers with them. I'm much, you know, I I can have a much more, in my experience, fruitful conversation with um, a neo-pagan than oftentimes with an atheist on these, these issues um, because, you know, we come from a place of understanding that there are, you know, spiritual realities. And even if we disagree on a lot of stuff in regards to, you know, just various practices and, and beliefs, at the same time, we have certain cultural crossover points and we have certain spiritual crossover points, which, again, through my interest in Celtic stuff, in Norse stuff, and all kinds of stuff, I had, and mythology in general, 
you know, you can have some very interesting and fruitful conversations with them. You can find areas of agreement and cooperation. Um, so, I mean, that, even with that, and not to keep going on the side, but even with that, I would say they helped me when I was trying to depict these pagan characters or characters who um, be like a mix, so to speak, of trying to depict it in a way which was believable. You know, it didn't feel like just something that a Christian made up about this. It felt like this was something that is plausible, um, you know, and something that is trying to be fair, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that was greatly helpful when I, again, covered Owain and Rhiannon and the other characters. Um, you know, they, you know, they have their own, I guess, modus operandi for how they see the world. Um, and even if we would disagree with it, you know, it's sort of, it's something that you could see how it kind of makes sense to them. Uh, so, I mean, we see that even with, like, the scene with regards to Owain, um, he's made the little figures of, of his, his dead family and he's reciting this poetry, you know, that goes so far back and it's his way of, of trying to deal with the tragedies that he's been through. It's his way of trying to find some transcendence to the whole thing and imminence. Um, so yeah, that's something that I think is important to me to try to reflect these different, you know, efforts of people efforts of human beings to reach out to God, or if they wouldn't call it God, something that is transcendent, something that is beyond the, the merely material. And it may be shot through the material, but it's not, it's not materialistic. It's not what the world today, the secular yeah. world, would call materialism. Well, I agree. Just a historical aside, you know, the Celts uh, uh, sort of a, took – Christianity fairly easy. There wasn't a lot of bloodshed like the Basques. You know, yeah. they killed every Catholic that came in there for quite a while. Yeah. They were they were fierce, but the Celts just sort of they that there was so much in common between the two, especially trinities and things like that. Yeah. A whole, whole mm -hmm. bunch of stuff that they just sort of uh, kind of messed pretty easily, and so I guess they were naturally I, trinitarian uh, people. They were a naturally trinitarian people that saw things in terms of three. Very, yeah, very, very easily. Big time. They wrote their poetry and all, I mean, everything. But uh, so I guess I agree with you that, 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 that on a general level that people seeking transcendence is better than people not <laughs> seeking transcendence. Yeah, and I mean, of course, of course, I would, of course, I would, I would say that even people, even atheists, and you know, I have quite a few atheist friends and editors for that matter. Um, but you know. I think that people often seek transcendence without even maybe articulating it that way. Um, but I think that in, in, in seeking, in seeking, I guess you might say to live by morality and, and also to appreciate art. I think oftentimes people seek God without even calling it God. I think this is something that's inherent to us to seek God. We will see God good. without even articulating it as such because it's I, part of our I, nature. I'd sort of say we do. Cormac McCarthy sort of hit the nail on the head because if if we're to the point where <laughs> if we're, we're saying, well, any sort of seeking transcendence is better than none, we're we're in a pretty dark secular time. To, well, we we are in, we're in a we're in a time where essentially we're told that um, God is dead and that the transcendent had been abolished. Yeah, so, we are. That's Nietzsche, but Nietzsche forward, you know. Right, exactly. And so it's something where it's something where I think shines out as as reflecting upon man's search for God and should I say God's efforts to reach man um, is almost like stars in a very dark night. Yep. So that's true of reflecting again on people that we we know, <laughs> and then the the writings that you know create. And I think the two are connected. I mean, certainly for me. I mean, I, I think for me, writing is a communal process. It's something that's built on networks of friendship and cooperation and everything else. And I mean, countless conversations with friends, you know, end up in the stories. Um, you know, just <laughs> turns of phrase, you know, they, 
inevitably real people that I know will be reflected in the characters that I create. So it's, it's all grounded in truth in that sense as well. Sort of existential truth. Mm. And I mean, uh, when you're dealing with history as well, like historical fiction, which is most of what I do, you know, you're dealing with, you know, real people from an era, even if the characters are fictitious. They're they're based upon, you know, real people who have experienced real things in given eras. And you're kind of, you're paying homage to, you know, your ancestors that have gone before you, really. Um, and I think that that's something also that's been lost. We have this notion of progress that, oh, you know, progress in modern world, things are just getting better and better, everything. And a tendency in a lot of historical fiction to look down on people of the past or to patronize them. And yeah. I was I was very cautious not to do that. You know, I I want them to not come off as like, oh, you know, these superstitious, you know, you know, bumpkins who didn't know anything. Like I, I want to really respect them. I want to respect them in the context of their culture and their understanding of things. And even if, yeah, we may look back on various things in the past and disagree with it now. Um, and there are areas where we have progressed, and that doesn't mean that we get to kind of look down our nose at them because there's there's truths and there's goodness and there's beauty that they had that we've forgotten. So it's a matter right. of humanity and humility. Yeah, we've regressed right. too. <laughs> exactly. We have. Exactly. So, uh, Avelina, we've reached the uh, essentially reached the end of our program. I thoroughly enjoyed having you on and. Uh, First of all, I'd like to invite you to come on again at some point. Would you would, would you be, be open to that? Oh, very much so, yes, because um, I would love to discuss my current project as well, which is uh, set during the American Revolution actually features um, General John Burgoyne, who I just had mentioned, and it deals with Catholic recusancy in the north of England. So I would love to come Maybe back and talk about that. On- Maybe we can have you on one day next week. Um, what, what I'll do is I'll get the information sure. from Jack. We'll reach out to you and figure out uh, what our what our schedule looks like for the next week. I'd love to have you back on. Uh, would okay, you please, that would be epic. Would you please close by uh, letting our listeners again know where they can find some of your books and articles and materials? Sure. So um, first up, um, you can check out my website, avelinabalestri.com. Also, for the magazine that I run, fellowshipandfairydust.com. And on Amazon, you can look me up, Avelina Balestri. You'll see my author's page, um, and that will include Saplings of Sherwood. You can purchase my poetry collection, uh, Pendragon's Shield, and then a number of anthologies that I have been a part of, um, some of which are out of FNF, um, some of which are from other productions. You can find all of that under that page. Uh, you can also look me up on Facebook. Um, and I'm around on LinkedIn too. <laughs> I'm around. <laughs> Generally, Google Google search me. You'll find various articles uh, that I've written in different locations. So, but those awesome. are, those are the main ones. And, and um, very lastly, probably... also, yeah, just very lastly, also, um, if you'd like to support FNS, we always appreciate that, especially because we're trying to run a conference, a sequel conference, um, in Cambridge University in England. Um, this September, hopefully, aiming for it, if we can make you know get get things paid for. Um, so, if you would like to do that um, for our literary conference, you can donate to Fellowship and Fairy Dust on Patreon, or you can donate to our GoFundMe page um, for the uh, the literary conference, which is called Passage of Light Literary Conference, um, and you know GoFundMe. So that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps with that. Wonderful. And I assume I'll probably see you from time to time, uh, probably on Catholicism Rocks. You you ever uh, contributed any material there? I have not as of yet. Um, I was talking with Sean Murray about that, um, you know, and I, I wasn't sure where, where he was at with it or, you know, what where, where, where you guys were at with development. Um, but I would certainly, you know, be interested in, in that or, or whatnot. Um, well, Jack can so, help, yeah. help you out with that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be in touch on that. Uh, we're still in the, the building stages, but it, it's building fast, but it's still uh, – it's a bit chaotic at the po- this point. Sure, sure. And I know you guys are – I mean, mostly you're like kind of an Irish-American company, so you're doing like a lot of stuff connecting Ireland and the, and the U.S., right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So, right. Okay, so – 
Yeah, well, for the fun of it, um, I'm predominantly Italian, but I do have some Irish in me. I'm actually um, have some some ancestry from County Cavan as well. And, um, and it's so funny because the Irish bit of my last name is Comiskey, which sounds so Polish. <laughs> and it's funny because I, I have Polish in me too, and that side that side is Levinsky. So it's like I have like three quarters Italian, one quarter literally everything else, and so I've got this Irish part that sounds Polish, but. Very high. <laughs> that's, that's quite a mix. It is indeed. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. There's like English, Irish, French, Polish, Dutch, German, you know, wow. uh, a bit of Argentinian. So it's it's just it's just it's manic. It's manic. So you're but, like you're <laughs> like your you're like your own little private United Nations going on there. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, yeah, yep, in a four ten package. <laughs> Jack, would you would you lead us with a closing prayer, please? Uh, yes. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, uh, please look down on all artists uh, and allow us to carry that light forward. Amen. Amen. Good night. It was a, it was a joy to have you on, and uh, I will be in touch with you. Hopefully, we'll have you on again next week. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to meet you and talk about this. Thank you. All right. God bless. God bless. God God bless. bless you too.